Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them, turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. We've been studying through this book uh, since the beginning of the year, the last half of this book, and in some way, shape, or form, uh, since chapter 25, our attention has been directed to a man named Jacob. Uh, we have uh, we've walked through a lot of his life. We, matter of fact, when we first met him, uh, he was struggling with his brother Esau uh, when he was still in the womb of his mother. And we have been following him in some way all the way through. And now as we get to chapter 49, we find out that he is on his deathbed. And, and the passage that we're going to read this morning in some respects is a little bit difficult because not everybody is, uh, not all the scholars and not all of the, the, the supposed experts are all together on exactly what every single verse that we will read this morning means. We're not going to try to focus in and, and answer all of the questions there, but we, I do want us to, to consider the fact that we are dealing with the final words of a man for whom the promise that had been given to Abraham uh, was passed down then to Isaac had also been passed down to him. And the promise basically said this, you will have, you will have a, an offspring that will outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. That offspring will, will form into a nation and I will give that nation a land as their eternal inheritance. And then also through your seed, God tells them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And though we may not completely understand everything that we read this morning, in some respects, we know that everything that happens in Genesis chapter 49 in some way relates back to that promise. And so with that as an understanding, let's open our Bibles. Let's hear the word of God this morning. Genesis 49 verse 1, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder 
to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of, of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel and this is what their father spoke to them and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this day and for this opportunity that we have to be able to gather in this place, to be able to read Your Word and to hear Your Word. And We pray that You would give us wisdom, that You would give us understanding. And Father, that You would help us to be able to apply that which we read today to our own lives. We pray this for Your glory and for Your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Now, undoubtedly, you noted as we were reading this passage that it is predominantly poetic in its form, but it is also prophetic in its nature. And we know that it is prophetic because of what we read in verse 1. Verse 1, Moses tells us that Jacob gathered his sons together around him uh, in his bed, really, for one last opportunity to to talk to them. And he tells them the things that he says will befall them or things that would happen to them in the last days or in the days to come. So by definition, we understand that what, what he says to them have a futuristic and a prophetic ring to them. So much so that we recognize that what Jacob told his sons not only had meaning for them, but had meaning for the generations that would come after them. And in fact, if you look down in verse 28, sort of the bookend verse that, that kind of encapsulates all of the prophetic nature of the, of the other verses, you'll see in verse 28 that we get another indication that what Jacob had told his sons had long-lasting implications. Because after having recorded all those blessings that Jacob gave to them, Moses then reminds us as his readers, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. In other words... What Jacob had to say affected not simply his immediate sons, but also the entire progeny that would come forth from him all the way into the future. So, 
So through these blessings, we are, we are being provided with a snapshot of what Israel will ultimately look like once they've settled back into the land of promise, back into the land of Canaan. And in so doing, Jacob is providing his sons really with a not-so-subtle reminder of his confidence, just as I mentioned earlier, that God was going to give them, He was going to give him a nation of people who would come forth. And He was going to give him a land in which those people could dwell. He is reminding them of his confidence in the promises that God had made to him, to his father Isaac, and to his grandfather Abraham. Now, I referred to this passage last week. I want to read it for you again just because I think it's so important that we understand that point. You'll recall that back in in Bethel, in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob encountered the Lord God there, and he encountered God who who was a staircase, had gone all the way up into the heavens, and angels went up and down that staircase and up and down that ladder. And it was at that moment that God revealed this promise to Jacob. He said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So based upon that, what we recognize is that Jacob is the carrier of God's covenant promise. The covenant that God had made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob had been passed down and now he is passing that same blessing on to his sons who will become the carrier of that blessing on into the future. In fact, note the three uses of the word blessing in the last line of verse 28. In verse 28 we read this, And he, that is Jacob, blessed them, that is his sons, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Now, The reason that that is so important is that I believe that as we read these prophecies to these individual sons, as we've already done this morning, what we come to know is that regardless of where we settle on some of the the intricacies of each of these prophecies, we do and can know this with absolute certainty, is that everything that Jacob says to them in some way relates back to the promises that God had made to him. So we must keep that promise in mind. Let me also say that while there are some of these prophecies that that are not as clear as others are, we can recognize this, that when, when, when Jacob makes these promises to them, he is establishing his confidence in God's goodness and the faithfulness that he has to keep his promises to him. Now, I want to be kind of transparent and honest with you. When I was reading through this and studying this passage and trying to get my hands around it, there's a few of the, the verses that I'm scratching my head, and Dave, I brought him in the office, and we sent us to, what do you think this means? I said, I've consulted every, every scholar and every book I've got, and they all kind of differ. They come up with a different conclusion to just about everything, and some of them just, just say, what this other guy's wrong, and this guy's wrong, and I'm thinking, how do we come to the end of that? And I just want you to know, sometimes there are certain passages of Scripture that are a little difficult in that regard. We might as well be honest about it and say that linguistically there are times when we're not exactly sure what the word was that that Moses used. And so we can't, if we don't know exactly what that word was, we can't always know exactly what he meant by it when he used it. And then we come across other parts of Scripture that says, well, when we read this right here, we read other passages that don't, it doesn't seem to make as much sense in, in light of that. And I want you to know this is one of those passages. But here's what I want, that doesn't mean we just wad it up and throw it away. 
Because there's difficulty there doesn't mean that we don't spend the time in trying to understand it and especially understand what it means to us. And so this morning what I want us to do is I want us to kind of consider this passage of Scripture from the perspective of where does the value come? And I think the first question that we have to ask if we want to be honest with the text and we want to understand it is that we have to ask this, what was the purpose of these prophecies for Jacob's sons? Maybe I could ask the question this way. As Jacob lay there on his bed... How did the faces of those 12 sons that were lining around his bed, how did they understand what it was that he said? Well, to begin the answer to that question, we have to consider this. Those 12 sons that lined around his bed ultimately all died in Egypt. None of them made it back to the land of Canaan. None of them lived to see the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that Jacob gave to them. And therefore, the weight of those future events had to begin to sink in on their minds as they contemplated what Jacob said to them. God was going to build their families, they realized, into an ultimately into a tribe. And then those tribes would then ultimately be built into that nation that God had promised his, their father that he would bless them with. Each son then realized, I have a part to play in God's divine plan. Each son would play a part in the way in which God would ultimately fulfill His divine blessing. That is from the, from the, from the 20,000 foot level. But I still think that there's a little more that we can learn if we drill down even a little deeper. You see, Jacob tells his first three sons some prophecies concerning their future. And when we understand what those are, we realize that not only was this prophecy prospective, not only did it look far out into the future to see how things were going to be, it was also retrospective in that it looked behind to see that, that much of the future was connected to things that had occurred in the past. In fact, that's a key recognition that leads me to the first point that I want you to note on your outline today. You see, these 12 faces that were staring at their dying father would have recognized from what he told them, number one, past decisions have future consequences. Past decisions have future consequences. You see, Reuben was the oldest of Jacob's sons, and so he, he gets addressed first by Jacob. And things start off really well for Reuben. Jacob tells him in verse 3, You're my firstborn, you're the might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Now, if he'd have stopped there, everything would have been good. But verse 4 comes. You're unstable as water. And then he says this, you shall not excel. Wow. Think about that, that phrase, you shall not excel. He's just said you are the excellency of dignity. You're the excellency of power. But in a play on that same word, he says, but you won't excel. Why? Because you went up to your father's couch. You defiled it. Now, Jacob is pointing Reuben back to the events of Genesis 35. We've studied that passage here. You're welcome to go back and read it. What you'll find is that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel, that is Jacob, heard about it. Now, in chapter 35, we don't get any kind of idea of what what Jacob thought about that event. Moses doesn't record it, but he does record it here because what he says is that not only was it a revolting thing that, 
that Reuben did, it showed his heart's motivation. In fact, when we were studying through that passage, I made the point that really Reuben going up to, to do what he did with, with his father's wife, his father's concubine, was his attempt to lay his hands, his control over the family that God had promised to bless his father with. He, he believed that he was the one who should go ahead and take control of the family. Here on his deathbed, Jacob looks at Reuben and he says, You will not excel because you have violated your father's honor. Kent Hughes notes how Jacob's words came true. He says, When Reuben's descendants settled in the Transjordan, they soon disappeared from history, and no prophet or judge or king would ever come from the tribe of Reuben. Past decisions have future consequences. Following Reuben, Jacob speaks to both Simeon and Levi who were infamously connected to the events of chapter 34 which you might notice is, is often referred to as the Dinah incident. There again, you're welcome to go back and read it for yourself. I would summarize what Simeon and Levi did this way. Because of what happened to their sister Dinah at the hands of the prince of Shechem, these two brothers perpetuated the genocidal slaughter of all the men of Shechem. And in light of their vengeful violence on his deathbed, Jacob says to them, I will divide their inheritance in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And indeed, they were scattered. Hughes notes that the tribe of Simeon virtually disappeared after the conquest in Canaan. And it was absorbed into the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Levi was never given an allotment in the land. Past decisions have future consequences. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through every prophecy of every son in this passage. And all of, all of God's people said, Amen. I understand. <laughs> I will point you that to a lot as you go back and do your own study, that many of the prophecies that we read about here, they're connected to the name of the individual. For example, Issachar. His name meant wages. And so when you read of the pro prophecy concerning him, it concerns the issue of labor. It's interesting how that brings into case. Dan, his, his name meant to judge. And ultimately, his prophecy involved him judging the tribes of Israel. Here's the point that I want you to know. While those sons who stood around Jacob's bed, looking at their dying father, they were wide-eyed and they were silent as he spoke. I believe each one of them had to consider the fact that their past actions would have had an effect on future generations. And I don't think any of us can be dogmatic specifically about everything that these 12 sons of Jacob would have understood. But we do know this, that they recognize that their past decisions had future ramifications on those that came after them. And in that regard, Jacob's words would have encouraged their sons. He would have encouraged his sons and their sons after them to live their lives in light of God's promises. In fact, that recognition actually bleeds over into the next section and the next question that I believe that needs to be asked. You see, not only do we need to ask, how did the twelve faces surrounding Jacob's bed understand the prophecy that Jacob had? But Moses was the one who wrote this, and he was writing it to a group of Israelites who had left the land of Egypt and had been delivered from the land of slavery. And so, rightfully, we need to ask, how did those roughly two, two million Jews from those twelve tribes how did they understand these prophecies? Those faces that were staring back at Moses, 
What did they recognize with regard to the necessity of these prophecies? Well, based upon what we've read today, I believe that those who truly pondered Jacob's words would have concluded, notice the second point on your outline, God's grace and mercy can overcome our sin. God's grace and mercy can overcome our sin. Why do I draw that conclusion from this text? Well, consider who was next in line to receive his blessing. He's already talked, Jacob's already talked to Reuben. He's already talked to Simeon and Levi. The next in line was Judah. And listen, every son standing around that bed knew all the skeletons in Judah's closet. See, it was back in chapter 37 that, that we read that Judah had suggested instead of just killing Joseph, their brother, why don't we sell him into slavery instead? At least we can make some money off of it. That was chapter 37. Chapter 38, we read that he, he left, willingly left the area where he was living with his father and with his brothers and left to go live among the Canaanites. And when he departed from them, that's still not even the worst that we read in chapter 38. The greater shame that we read about is that Judah unknowingly and shamefully fathered a child by his daughter-in-law named Tamar. Now, in light of the blessings, and some might even say cursings, that have been passed down to Reuben and Simeon and Levi, can you imagine what must have been going through old Judah's mind when his name was mentioned by his father? I can just imagine him thinking, oh no, here it comes. But instead, Jacob said to him, Judah, whose name literally means to praise, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. In fact, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's children shall bow down before you. He goes on to describe Judah in the terms of being like a lion in that he will overcome his enemies. He will take them by the nape of the neck and overpower them. Not only that, but he describes them in, in ways of, being, uh, of having a kingdom. Now, I want to come back to that in just a few moments, but here's the, what, here's the shock of Jacob's words. Not only in that room surrounded by all of his brothers, but in later generations, when, when they would have read about this blessing, those that Moses wrote to would have had to consider that while it is true that past decisions have future consequences, they also recognize that God's grace and His mercy can overcome our sin. This, this was evidently and patently true in Judah's life. In fact, what the Scriptures teach us is that Judah recognized his sin of his past decisions and he repented of them. Toward the end of chapter 38, when he was confronted with his hypocrisy and how he had dealt with his daughter-in-law Tamar, he publicly confessed that she was more righteous than he was. Then in chapter 44, it was Judah who acknowledged his guilt to Joseph in how he had treated the youngest brother or the younger brother. And furthermore, it was his heartfelt appeal to take the place of Benjamin that showed he had repented of the way that he had treated Joseph earlier that made it forth for Joseph to just pour out his grace and mercy upon Judah. And listen, the grace and mercy that is poured out upon Judah in chapter 44 is indicative in only a small way of the grace and the mercy that God pours out on sinners who come and repent. God's grace and mercy can overcome our sin. 
I don't believe that such a message of hope was lost on that roughly two million Jews as they stood there and as Moses had led them out of Israel or Egyptian slavery. After all, they would have been the ones who looked around at themselves and as they traced back their lineage, they could have all found themselves some way, just about all of them related back somehow to these sons that were standing around Jacob's bed. And they would have all realized if we ever make it into Canaan's promised land, it will not be because of something that we did or because of something good that our fathers did. It will be because of the matchless grace and mercy of God who will fulfill His promises. The perceptive ones of them would have realized that even in light of their own sin, because the book of Exodus tells us that as those those Israelites moved out into the wilderness, they were a raucous lot. They were a rebellious lot. They were a lot who didn't even do everything that they were told to do. They complained about how God fed them and and took care of them. And even many of them said, we wish that we could go back to Egypt. Even in light of that sinfulness, Moses is revealing those who will come to the Lord and in repentance, that God would bless them with His grace and mercy. Grace and mercy can overcome our sin. But then that brings us to the final question that I think needs to be asked in this text if we're truly going to understand the value of it and actually apply it to our own lives. Because you see, as a preacher, it's my responsibility to not only ask what did the faces of those 12 looking at Jacob understand about these prophecies? And not only is it my responsibility to consider what did the faces of those 2 million Jews among the 12 tribes of Israel who were looking back at Moses understand about these prophecies, but I have to consider what are all your faces Looking back at me as I'm reading these prophecies, what do you understand? How do these prophecies apply to you and to me? I'm glad you asked. Because this is the third point that I want you to see on your text this morning. The third point is this. What we recognize as we look at this passage is that God's promised plan to bless the nations comes through Christ. God's promised plan to bless the nations comes through Christ. I want to go back to that blessing that Jacob passed to Judah. The first thing that I want you to recognize is that Judah's name, as I said, means to praise. And then ultimately it's the brothers who are praising him. But notice that that, that Jacob predicts the preeminence and the power of the tribe of Judah. As I said, he compares him to a lion. And And he says, even then we recognize that a lion was the king of the jungle. And all the other animals would bow down in superiority, into the lion's superiority. And consequently... He says, your father's children will bow down to you. So Jacob's blessing of Judah involves praise. It also involves a a lion-like dominance, but then it involves this kingdom. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Ancient Jewish and Christian scholars are uniformly in agreement that this passage in verse 10 is a prophecy that points toward the coming Messiah. Where they diverge is really on how the last part of that verse is translated, until Shiloh comes. That's the way the New King James refers to it. If you're reading from another translation, you're going to see notations out to the side of verse 10. The ESV translates it that the scepter will not depart until tribute comes to him. The NIV says that it will will be there until he comes to whom it belongs. I don't want us to get lost on the details. Rather, let me just quote Hughes once more where he says this. While there is no consensus as to what the exact wording should be, there is a unified understanding that the scepter 
And the ruler's staff are symbolic of a kingdom that would remain with Judah until the Messiah comes. And then to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, I made my point at the beginning of the sermon today that that Jacob was a carrier of the covenant blessing and promises that had been given to his grandfather and to his father and then passed down to him. And that that covenant promise involved the nation of people that would be too numerable to count and that it involved the land that would be an eternal inheritance and that it involved a seed that would come forth to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And while all of those elements are included in as part of the blessings that were passed on to Jacob's sons here in chapter 49, it is that last part of the promise that I want to focus on as we come to a close this morning. You see, back in chapter Three of Genesis. We have the first promise of the blessed seed. In the wake of Satan's deception, both Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin thrust them and all of their offspring as well as all of creation into darkness. God promised that a deliverer from the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. We call that in, in, in theological terms, the proto-evangelicum. It is the first announcement of the gospel. It occurs in Genesis chapter 3 that God had a seed that would come from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And what we read as we go on through Genesis is that that seed was preserved through righteous Noah. And then from Noah's son to Shem, it was preserved. And then through Shem's son, Abraham, it was preserved. And then through Abraham's son, Isaac, it was preserved. And then through Isaac's son, Jacob, it was preserved. And as we come here to Genesis 49, we recognize that the seed was preserved through Jacob's son, Judah. And significantly, what I want you to recognize is that when Jacob made this promise to his son Judah, that all of his brothers would end up bowing down to him and that his name would be praised. That was patently not taking place. Because you know who the son that they were all bowing down to at this point was? Joseph. By virtue of the fact that Pharaoh had anointed him to be his viceroy over all of Egypt, he was the one in whom all the power was vested. But what that recognition reminds us of is that the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy moved on past the book of Genesis. In fact, it moved on past the Pentateuch. It moved all the way into the historical books where we find that there was a young boy out on a field tending to his father's sheep when Samuel the prophet came and actually anointed him to become the king, the one that God had promised, a man after his own heart, David, a boy from the tribe of Judah. And as the scriptures go on to reveal through the prophetic books and on into the New Testament, it was through him, it was through him that God would ultimately send his son, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what that tells us is that God's promised plan to bless the nations comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, There's a lot more that we could say with regard to this passage and with regard to how it fits in the whole history of Israel and the whole history of the Scriptures. Here's what I want us to think about as we close. If past decisions truly do have future consequences, what that would have meant to those original 12 brothers and what it still means to us today is that 
We're not to live passive and complacent lives. If past decisions truly, if like we looked at last week, if every one of us in this room are truly going to leave a legacy, then we need to understand this. We are to leave a legacy that's going to count for the glory of God and for the cause of the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, your decisions, your character, your actions will have future consequences. So therefore, live your life trusting in God and obeying His Word. Furthermore, if we looked a little further and we recognize that God's grace and mercy can overcome sin, then you know what? Such a lesson like that gives everybody hope. It tells me that even if I have blown it in the past and I have messed up, and let me be the first one to raise my hands and say, that's me, because I have blown it and messed up more times than I can count. But you know what the Scriptures continue to say? If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The same message that was true back then is still true today. God's grace and mercy can overcome sin. Well, then finally, then we looked at this passage in the long distance perspective and we realized that based upon what the New Testament teaches us is that the fulfillment of God's promised plan to bless the nations comes to fulfillment in that He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, then that is what leads me to this point of application, and this is my sermon in a sentence this morning. It's this. We must place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who frees us from the penalty of our sin and calls us to live obedient lives in light of His promised blessing. I keep coming back to this again and again and again. While it may be challenging in some ways to understand every intricate detail of these, these blessings and these prophetic words, the one thing that cannot be denied is this. It is pointing us to Jesus. It is pointing us to the one who has the ability to do what we cannot do, and that is to save ourselves from our sins. So here's my question. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? the lion of the tribe of Judah? Have you trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins? Is your confidence in Him, just as we've had the two testimonies stand before us in the waters of baptism this morning who say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, can you, from the truthfulness of your heart, make that same testimony this morning? Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? If so, then let me ask you this. Are you living your life in obedience to Him? Have you committed your ways to Him? When others look at your life, can they truly, as the song says, see Jesus in you? I pray that that will be our testimony, collectively and individually, because brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy to us. We thank You for Your holy scriptures that You have authored and given to us, that we might study them, that we might we truly un try to understand them to the very best of our ability and then to apply those truths to our lives. My prayer, Lord Jesus, is that You would continue to draw men, women, boys, and girls to You in salvation, that they would come to know You as their Lord and their Savior, but that You would also, once You have called us, that you, we know You will not let us go. But I pray that we would find ourselves living obediently to the cause of Christ and according to your word. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.